Our Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning by your Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds to behold wondrous things from your law. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. On August 6th, 1801, a steady stream of pilgrims made their way up a hill to the Cane Ridge Meeting House near Paris, Kentucky. They came for an an annual communion service, a practice that was brought over from Scotland, from some Scottish Presbyterians, where they would hold a week-long festival of preaching, fasting, and prayer that culminated with the once-a-year taking of communion. They were Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, and they came at the invitation of Barton W. Stone, the Presbyterian pastor of Cane Ridge. Stone had been impressed by and excited about the, the revivals that had been sweeping America at the time, the camp meeting revivals, and he wanted to see the same sort of thing happen in his own town. These revivals were the opening act of the, the uh, religious fervor known as the Second Great Awakening. So Stone invited people to come to Cane Ridge, and thus began the Cane Ridge Revival. Over the course of the, the week, about 20,000 people came to Cane Ridge, and they heard sermons, they took communion, But they also had emotional experiences such as ecstatic, spontaneous preaching and being slain in the spirit. Within the next few years, Stone would lead an exodus from the Presbyterian church, establishing a group that called themselves simply Christians. Stone had had problems for some time with the Presbyterians' Westminster Confession of Faith. And the group he led claimed to want to do away with confessions and creeds and catechisms and any doctrine beyond the Bible itself, any documents beyond the Bible. So one of their slogans was, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no law but love, no name but the the divine. Many people today might agree with Stone and his movement. They'd say, we don't need doctrine. Doctrine divides. Doctrine gets in the way of Christian unity. They say also sometimes that doctrine is is unhelpful. Beyond being simply unnecessary, it's unhelpful because it, it stifles a passionate Christian life. It's better instead for us to maintain a very simple faith in Jesus. Well, the Apostle Paul would disagree. And in our passage today, he tells us that there are some doctrines that we ought to know. And further, he expects that knowing these things will in fact lead to a passionate Christian life. So when we look at this passage, we can see that it breaks down quite neatly into three parts. Verses 15 to 16 tell us about Paul's thanks to God for the Ephesians. Verses 17 to 19 tell us about Paul's prayer for knowledge. 
and verses 20 to 23 tell us about Paul's praise of God's power in Christ. Now, I want to focus our attention on what these things mean for us as we live the Christian life. So I'm going to call them the shape of the Christian life, the sustenance of the Christian life, and the surety of the Christian life. So let's first look at what Paul says about the shape of the Christian life. He begins by saying, for this reason, obviously pointing back to what he had said before, verses 3 to 14, where Paul lists this amazing uh, group of blessings that we enjoy by virtue of our faith in Christ. But especially verses 13 and 14, where Paul notes that the Ephesians had heard and believed the gospel and were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So for this reason, Paul gives thanks. But he notes also that he gives thanks because he had heard of the faith of the Ephesians. He had heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Now, Paul had had a history with the Ephesians. If you read the book of Acts, you see that he had gone there on his third missionary journey, visited Ephesus, and stayed there for two years. So he knew many people there. He wrote this letter five or six years uh, after departing Ephesus, and apparently had heard that the church had been growing, was doing well, and so he wants to write this church and bless them, give them a gift, the gift of this, this letter and, and this explanations of the various things that he says in this letter. So he is grateful when he hears about the faith of the church and their growth. But by talking about their faith, he might be referring also to their faithfulness, especially in the face of trials. We know that this was at least a possibility that they would face trials because in Acts 19, a riot broke out because of the the preaching of Paul and the other disciples. So there was certainly opposition to the gospel in Ephesus that might at some point break out into persecution. And so the Ephesians were rejoicing that perhaps even in the midst of of persecution from the surrounding uh, culture, they were bearing up and remaining faithful. Either way, Paul rejoices that these Ephesian believers have trusted in Christ and are living for him. Paul says that he has heard of the love of the Ephesians, the love that they have for all the saints. Love is, of course, one of the defining Christian virtues. When Jesus wants to tell his disciples, how, how are people going to know that you're a Christian? It's by your love. He says in John thirteen thirty five, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Christians are called to love their neighbor as themselves, to do good to everyone. But there is a special love that is envisioned and reserved, especially for those who are part of the community of faith, our fellow believers in the church. This is because when we are saved by God, we are not saved by ourselves to simply live our lives on our own, but we are placed within a community, a body of believers, the body of Christ, as Paul says 
calls it in our passage, verse 23. And so just as we strive to love our physical bodies, we must strive to love our spiritual body, the body of Christ, of which we are a part. We can see this special love in action in various places in the New Testament. There's the collection for the Christians in Jerusalem that's referred to in several places. There's the call to continue meeting together in Hebrews 10. There are the various one another statements that are found throughout the New Testament. Love one another, submit to one another, welcome one another, serve one another. Paul has heard of the love that the Ephesians have for one another in Christ. And so he rejoices to see this Christian virtue being lived out. And as Paul gives, gives thanks, we are reminded that thankfulness is another inherently Christian virtue. We as Christians of all people have the most reason to be thankful. We have all of the blessings that Paul had outlined in the, the previous passage in verses 3 to 14. We enjoy justification, adoption into the family of God sanctification through his Holy Spirit, reconciliation with the Father, freedom from the curse of the sin, from the curse of sin, fellowship with our fellow believers, and more. And so for all these reasons, we ought to be thankful to God. But Paul gives one more reason. We ought to be thankful for the salvation of others. Not simply for our own salvation, but Paul rejoices because the Ephesians have come to believe in the gospel. It is solely because of the work of God that any one of us believes. And so when we see God at work in the lives of others, we ought to be thankful. We ought to thank God, no less than we ought to thank him for our own salvation. So we see here something of the shape of the Christian life that it begins and is sustained by faith, is marked by love for other believers, and is marked by thankfulness to God. Next, Paul talks about the sustenance of the Christian life. He says in verse 16 that he continually gives thanks for the Ephesians and, and prays for them, remembering them in his prayers. And then beginning in verse 17, he tells us what exactly he prays for. He prays that the Ephesians would have knowledge. Specifically, that God would grant them that, that knowledge. He says, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This knowledge that Paul prays for is from God, granted by God. Paul prays that God would give it to them. They already knew something of God. They had saving knowledge of him. But that is not enough. You don't stop there. Paul prays that God would continue to grant knowledge of himself to the Ephesians. That they would grow in their knowledge of him. Some years ago, there was a genre of 
biblical literature that was popular for a little while that was maybe, you could call it the, the Bible code genre. I once read a book just because I was curious about how this Bible code thing works. If you're not familiar with it, they would basically take all the words of Scripture and line them up, the letters in a grid, and then do, do kind of like a word search. And they would, the, the claim was that you could discover these secret messages about what was going to happen in the future and so forth. Well, the Bible doesn't work this way. If you, if you didn't know, the Bible is, is meant to be read uh, in many ways just like any other book. You don't, you don't try to crack the code of a regular book when you're reading it. You just read the book, and the message is there. The Bible is much the same way. And, and the, the message of Scripture is extremely plain. Anyone who reads it and who wants to know what it teaches can easily discover that message. The other, but the other problem with the Bible code method, apart from obscuring the clear message of Scripture, is that it's impersonal. It teaches that all you have to do to understand this message is line up these letters and and do the word search, it's a, you're, you're cracking a code. Whereas the message of Scripture is not impersonal, it's personal. It comes through a person, the spirit, the spirit of knowledge. It is the spirit who gum, comes and grants us wisdom and knowledge. The spirit is the one who, who works faith in us and applies the salvation that was accomplished by Christ. And he is then the one who sanctifies us over the course of our lives, who continues to grant us new knowledge, who opens the scriptures to us that we might grow in our understanding of who God is and what he has done for us. Knowledge of scripture is personal. It's personal also in that the object is personal. We are learning about a person, not merely about future events, disasters, and so forth that you might discover in the Bible code. We're learning about a person. God reveals himself in Scripture, but he doesn't reveal everything. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, God says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. God doesn't reveal everything. But he has revealed enough that we can be saved and that we can grow in our knowledge of who he is. So this is a call for us to pray for ourselves and for our fellow believers that we could all be granted this spirit of knowledge and wisdom and continue to grow in our understanding of who God is. Next, Paul prays that the Ephesians would know the hope to which he has called you. We often think of hope as having a, a future orientation, especially in terms of things that are uncertain. I hope I get this job. I hope I get a promotion. I hope I get good news from the doctor. In Scripture, hope has another sense, one that we can see in Romans 5.2. Paul says there, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope 
of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This glory, the hope of the glory of God that Paul is talking about is not something merely future or or uncertain. It's something that we have a taste of now. And because we have a taste of it now, we also have the promise that we will one day enjoy the fullness of it. Hope in Scripture is something that you can have certainty of, something that you are heading toward, that you know you will one day step into. It's that which we long to see. And so, when we talk about the revelation of our uh, the, the the revelation of our salvation, the hope to which He has called you, we hope for it because we've received a taste of it, and we look forward to receiving the fullness of it in our sanctification, in our glorification, in seeing all of God's saints brought in to His body. But there is no uncertainty about it. God will do what he has said he will do. And then there is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul had already spoken of an inheritance in this chapter. In verse 14, he calls the spirit the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So there he's talking about, again, this this fullness of the spirit that we will one day uh, enjoy. And so Paul could be speaking of this inheritance again, the inheritance that God has stored up for us. In that case, he could mean with this phrase, the inheritance that he has in store for the saints or the inheritance that will be enjoyed among the saints. But I think it's better to see this as God's inheritance rather than our inheritance. Because it does say, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints rather than our glorious inheritance? This means that God sees us, the saints, as a glorious inheritance that he will receive one day. He is storing us up for himself for the day of final redemption, that he might gather us all in one day. Which is kind of a crazy thought, if you think about it. Because if you're anything like me, you've had the, you've thought to yourself, I understand that God loves me because he saved me. He gave his only son because he loved me, right? But does he like me? Does God enjoy me? Does God look forward to being with me? Friends, if you are in Christ, God delights in you. He sees you as his treasure, his glorious inheritance. He cannot wait to be with you one day. And this is one of the things that Paul wants the Ephesians and us to know about God. This is life-giving doctrine, how valuable we are to God. That is, of course, why he sent his son to die for us. Finally, Paul prays that the Ephesians would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. 
He goes on to say that this power uh, is according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul wants his wants the Ephesians to know what a great change has been wrought in their lives as a result of their coming to faith in Christ. So he compares their salvation, which is their spiritual resurrection, to Christ's physical resurrection. Which means, first, that our salvation is wholly a work of God, just as the resurrection of Christ was wholly a work of God. It also means that the power that was at work in Christ in the resurrection is now at work in our lives. That same resurrection power. The immediate object of that power is our salvation, bringing us to new spiritual life. But it doesn't end there. Paul realized that the resurrection power of Christ goes beyond salvation when he met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. Because Christ had been raised, the new age had begun, and everything had changed. There is resurrection power at work in the world even now. That power creates new believers. It sanctifies believers. It keeps them safe until they come into glory. And that power has a goal. As I said, we create, uh, that power creates more believers. The sanctification means that Christ is, is uh, not only the first fruits of resurrection, but also the pattern, the first fruits of, of that new life. But he is also the pattern. The Spirit conforms us to his image over the course of our lives. So the same power that raised Christ from the dead has raised us to new life in Christ and is now at work in us to conform us to his image. So when we contemplate Christ's resurrection, we have an illustration of the change that has been effected in us in our salvation and also a promise that God will see it through to completion. So we should not lose heart. So that's the shape of the Christian life and the sustenance of the Christian life. And then finally, there is the surety of the Christian life. Paul continues to write about the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. takes a few verses to kind of meditate on this. He writes in verse 20 of Christ being seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. The right hand is the place of power and authority. God would not see Jesus there if he were not pleased with his work. That the Son is seated means that his work is accomplished. He has sat down. The work is done. There is nothing more that needs to be done to accomplish our redemption. And there he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Which that list is, is likely a reference to different classes of angels or spirits, something that would have been a great concern in Ephesus. It was, uh, you can read about it in, uh, again in Acts 19. The city was apparently a hotbed of occultic activity. And so that reassurance that Christ has power over all of these powers that, that are arrayed against him would have been of great 
comfort. And that Christ is above all created creatures, above every name that is named. And he is there permanently. We don't have to fear that anyone will take his place, that anyone will supplant him. Because he will rule not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul expresses the idea of the universal rule of Christ in a different way in the next verse. Verse 22, he says, He put all things under his feet, which is likely a reference to Psalm 8, which says, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. David, in writing this psalm, is speaking of mankind generally, who is given power to rule over creation in the name of God. But there's a sense that this applies more specifically to the God-man, Jesus Christ, who, as the, the only perfect man and the, the one who lives forever, is the only one who can truly carry out the sort of universal dominion envisioned in this psalm. Finally, Paul says that God gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What this tells us is that Christ's universal dominion is for the sake of the church. We've seen how the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us in our salvation and our sanctification. And now we read that Christ's power and authority have a purpose as well. The good and growth of his church. So we can have surety in the Christian life because in the most exalted position in the universe, Christ sits enthroned and there he works for the sake of his people. Paul goes on in the following chapters to list some of the ways that that power is exercised in the lives of believers. And so we can see that this was no dead doctrine for Paul. He expected the Ephesians to praise God for these glorious truths and that they would make a difference in their lives. As they experience the power of Christ in the life of the church. So this is doctrine, knowing who God is and what he has done for us. He did what we could not do so that we could be reconciled to him. We celebrate this every Lord's Day as we remember the work of our Savior and praise him for us, for it. Out of his great love for us, he has revealed himself to us. He gave up his son for our sins, and he sent his spirit to live in us. Paul prays that the Ephesians would know all these things, expecting that they would make a difference, that knowing these things would make a difference in their lives. And so we, likewise, should strive to know these things, to understand more of who God is, 
that we would not fall into the the trap that Barton Stone fell into, being content with a minimal amount of knowledge, a simplistic knowledge, but instead that we would yearn to know all that God would have to teach us about himself. There is so much to know. There is so much for which we can praise God, so let us strive to know all that we can about him and that we would be sustained by what we learn that we would encourage one another and that we would strive to live lives that are pleasing to him. So as we live the Christian life, reflecting on these doctrines can shape us, it can sustain us, and it can give us surety as we live the Christian life, as we look heavenward in the settled hope to which we were called. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your grace to us. 